It's time for Series 3 of Shooting the Breeze. As we continue our focus on women's basketball, we'll be talking to more of the amazing players in the WNBL, the coaches that inspire them, those people behind the scenes that do so much for the sport, as well as so many more from across the Australian women's basketball landscape and beyond. It's the 42nd WNBL season, the longest-running women's professional league in the country, and this year, 2022, Sydney will stage the FIBA Women's World Cup, featuring the 12 best women's teams on the planet, playing right here on our turf. There's so much to come in this season. Subscribe, like, and review our podcast so we can get more Hoops content to you. We want to welcome on board the Island Pacific Soap Company as our first commercial partner. They make high-quality, all-natural, handcrafted bath soap. Check them out online, and a big shout-out to Paul for all the support. You know, we were on the road in Brisbane, and we'd come out, we'd lost an, a heartbreaker in the fourth, and there was a group of King supporters outside as we walked out, and the boys were like, thanks for coming, we really appreciate the support, you know, and Chase, you know, was thanking them, and the little girl's like, oh, Fleur, and I'm like, oh, hi. She's like, can my mum get a photo with you? My mum loves you, and I'm, I was absolutely blown away. <laughs> Only five women have coached in the NBL during its 43-year history. Assistant coach Fleur McIntyre is the first for the Sydney Kings, who are currently on a hot run and keeping their fans on the edge of their seats with some really close finishes. An accomplished academic with a background in exercise and sports science, Fleur gives us an amazing insight into the team's player development, but she's no slouch with the X's and O's either. She's coached and played at semi-professional level and in the WNBL in her home state of Western Australia, but the passion and joy for the multifaceted role she's got at the Kings is there for all of us to see. This is one episode you're going to want to save and repeat. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining my co-host Jacinta Govind and myself, it's assistant coach for the Brydon's Lawyers Sydney Kings, Fleur McIntyre. Fleur, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to join you guys. We're really excited because, you know, there's there's a whole lot to talk about in terms of coaching and your background and everything that you bring to the game. So I want to start off by getting into about your role at the Sydney Kings and what you do and how you got the role because I'm sure there's a there's a story to that. There is a story. There's always a story usually when it's involving me. So I, I'll go with that first, how I got the role. I okay. had been in academia, university, for the better part of 15 years, on top of my coaching and basketball background sort of around that as my other job. Um, I'd finished at Notre Dame University in Fremantle in Western Australia and had was sort of wondering what was next. I was kind of figuring it out. I, want, I knew I wanted a change. I wasn't sure what that looked like. Uh, I had a phone call and a missed call one day. I looked at my phone. I'm like, oh, Luke Longley's called me. So you tend to pay attention when Luke Longley leaves you a voicemail. And it was classic Luke cryptic. Oh, hey, Fleur, it's Luke. Give me a, I haven't heard from Luke in about 10 years. We did know each other, but I hadn't sort of, you know, spoken to him in about 10 years. Give me a call back. I want to ask you something. And I'm like, oh, this is weird, but sure. Rang him back and he sort of said to me, what are you doing right now? I said, well, nothing. And he's like, Do you, are you interested in applying a, for a job with the Sydney Kings as assistant coach? I'm like, oh, 
sure, that sounds that sounds cool. He's like, well, I'm sh- pulling together a short list of about six, seven candidates. And he had reached out to a friend of mine, Adam Capon, who's assistant coach with the Australian Boomers, current head coach of the G League uh, Long Island Nets. And he sort of reached out to Adam and said, I want to expand the search. I'm sick of just looking inside, you know, basketball and the NBL. I want to go a little bit outside. And it was actually Adam. So I have Adam, Adam takes credit. So he threw my name forward. Um, I passed on my resume to the Kings and we went from there. I had a conversation with Paul Smith on the Monday because New South Wales were in a lockdown. So I think Smitty was a little bit bored. And so we had a chat for about <laughs> half an hour, um, just about his vision for the organization and where he wanted things to go. So that was a really nice chat. And then I had an interview with Chase. I, I remember it was like 7 a.m. my time. He's in the middle of an NBA final series with the Bucks, and messaged me and said, can we do a phone interview? I still remember I, I was in my pajamas sitting on my stairs. It wasn't video, thank God. It was just a phone call. Um, and, yeah, I felt like it went really well. Like I felt like we connected very much on style of play and some of our principles and, you know, how we sort of operated. But as well, you know, it was really interesting to, to hear about him as a coach and how he, you know, saw himself and particularly his coaching staff. And then on the Sunday I had another conversation with uh, Chris Pongrass, our CEO, and again, you know, I felt like it all went pretty well that week. And then basically I knew I was shortlisted and then was offered the job like two days later. So moved to Sydney and assistant coach for the Kings. So that's the first part of the story, how I got the job. To answer your second part, my role with the Kings is I'm one of the assistant coaches, myself and Kevin Lish and also Daniel Kickett and Lockie Lonigan make up the assistant coaching staff. So really lucky that there's four of us, I think, to support Chase and the players in that respect. Um, my role basically as assistant coach is to support Chase and the players any way I can. So that obviously involves helping with day-to-day, running like individual workouts and player development sort of skill stuff, scouting opposition teams in the NBL and delivering scout. And then obviously, you know, just day-to-day stuff wherever you can sort of help out and assist the players. So whether that's on game day, um, assisting Chase with anything he needs. So that's pretty much my job. So when it came to the interview process, what kind of questions do they actually ask you? Like when you're going for, which sounds like a silly question, but what kind of questions do they ask for a head coach to gauge if an assistant coach is going to be a great fit? Yeah, so Chase has obviously asked about my background and wanted to know my background at the university, what I taught, what I'd sort of been doing there, and then obviously my basketball background. We then sort of, a lot of the questions were focused on what I considered Um, really important characteristics and traits of teams that I'm involved in. So defensively, what are the, you know, two or three things that you think are critical if a team's going to be successful? Offensively, what are the sort of things that you would preach? And I think, you know, knowing Chase's style of play now and how he likes to operate, I think we were quite similar in some of the things that I spoke about. Um, We spoke a little bit about analytics and sort of my background at NBL one level and then obviously just being able to scout cut film, that sort of stuff, and be able to pull things together because that's obviously a huge part of the job now using, you know, the software that we use and being able to cut film and, you know, interact with players via video. And then also about relationships and what I sort of valued and how I worked to develop relationships. And I think having a background at the university and not just being I think in a sport bubble the whole time was actually an advantage for me. Um, I've had to deal with such diverse groups of adults and young people across, you know, so many years. I sort of spoke about those experiences and how I've, I guess, infiltrated that into my coaching as well. So those are the sort of questions that I got asked and my answers. It's interesting you talking about that because there's two things out of that for me. Firstly, 
the ability of being able to bring the experience of outside the sports bubble. One of my favorite sayings is that if you're too tunnel visioned, you're going to miss the obvious. And bringing that in, I think, is really important for teams because it gives a different perspective. But also the question that I thought of while you were going through that is, was the team culture that Chase wanted to develop part of what you were looking to to identify? Yeah, look, I think absolutely. I think one of the things that Chase and I really connected on a lot is that we both love to find joy in whatever it is that we do, you know, and I've been like that my whole life. If I'm going to invest in something, I'm going to be involved in something, I'm going all in and I'm sort of making sure that there's joy there and there's fun because I think when you're in this cutthroat world of professional sports and it can be tough, you know, wins and losses and high stakes and high pressure. So I think that was one of the things that we really connected on because that's Chase as well. Like I think obviously he's dealing with far more stress as the head coach of this program. But what, when he spoke about that, I asked him about his coaching style and what he thinks he, you know, sort of hung his hat on. And he spoke about that. And I was like, oh, I really like that because that's something that that's me. You know, like I think that most people that know me, I'm very much a positive person. I like to make sure that I enjoy and I bring that fun. I think that that's really, I mean, it helps that we're winning games. I mean, we've won five straight, which always helps your cause. It's a lot more fun when you're winning games. Yes, absolutely. But I think, you know, having that and having guys enjoy coming to practice and being part of it, knowing that we're building something of togetherness and everyone's in this together and, you know, we need to all do this as a collective if we're going to be successful. So that was something that Chase really preached from the start and something that I feel really strongly about. So I think that was a real positive things in trying to organise where we want this thing to go. And what other things, I think Paul and I have talked to previous guests about building team culture, which is a lot uh, easier said than done. So um, apart from you know, having, bringing in, you know, optimism and some positivity to the group, what other things do you believe is uh, important for building a good team culture as well? I think one of the things that we've really spoken about and we have these pillars that are part of, you know, our build the kingdom kind of mantra that we have across the Kings. And I think it's, you know, certain things about how you represent the jersey and how you represent the club. Are you doing things in the right way? I think there's honouring the past. Um, and I think the Kings, Daniel Kickett, I don't know if you've read the articles, has taken a real leadership role as a former player of the Kings and trying to bring yeah. that back to the Kings, which I really like. And I think, um, not that I think there's been a disconnect in the past, but I think it's really important to honour those that have gone before you, you know, that, you know, we're the ones drinking from the well, but we're not the ones that dug the well. And I think that's always really important that you understand that. So I think that's been something that we've talked about in terms of building the culture. And this is all still a work in progress. You know, it's things that aren't going to happen in six months. I think it's things that we're going to build over a fair bit of time. I think as well, connection to the community. And we just had our presentation today, actually, with Indigenous Round. The amazing artist Stuart came and spoke about his design and his connection obviously to the land, but obviously gave a little bit of background into Aboriginal and Indigenous culture. And I think that sort of stuff is really, really important in terms of building that connection to community. So all these layers, I think, are all these sort of stepping stones and provide that really nice foundation in terms of who we want to be as the Sydney Kings. And I think if we can get that right and really establish that, then obviously that translates to what you're going to see on court. So those are sort of the things that we're focusing on. So Fleur... You're the fifth woman to coach in the NBL. <laughs> and you're the only one currently coaching in the NBL. Now, Jacinta and I have spoken a few times about the number of women coaching. 
because as far as we're concerned, there's no reason why there shouldn't be more, not only in the WNBL, but certainly in the NBL as well. Do you think seeing more women coaching in the NBL is going to help to normalize that and actually break down the barriers so that we do get, because the talent's there, right? There's no question there is, there are talented coaches out there who could come into any team at that elite level and coach. I hope so. Um, It's something that, well, I guess with International Women's Day, you know, I think it's really important. And obviously there's the, the hashtag and I guess the theme this year is breaking the bias. And I certainly hope that when we have representation, it gives other females, I guess, hope, but also I think confidence in themselves. I think a lot of the time when I speak to female coaches and chat to them, I think sometimes our biggest opposition and a barrier is ourselves and that we doubt ourselves. I mean, I think a lot, we all do, we have this imposter syndrome, particularly when you're going into an unknown situation and thinking, do I know what I'm doing to walk into this situation? So, and I mean, I'll put my hand up and you have those doubts constantly, but I think once you're in it, you sort of realize that, oh no, I'm okay, that this is like, I'm built for this and I'm I'm okay. And so I'm hopeful that if other female coaches see me and there's representation and they talk to me about things that it gives them the confidence to know that, oh no, I can go and do this as well. So I think hopefully it's sort of breaking down those barriers and eliminating that bias because I'll be honest, the Sydney Kings have been incredible. The number one question I get from people is, how do you go with the men's team? And, I mean, you could ask them, but I I couldn't even tell you a single – there's no issue that I'm a female in coaching with the Sydney Kings. Those guys are the greatest human beings of all time regardless of my gender or anything like that. So I feel so incredibly lucky and grateful that I've ended up with this basketball team. And I think that they couldn't care less whether that I'm a female, to be perfectly honest. They just embrace me. I'm just part of the team. Um, and I think that that's sort of, you know, halfway there. And hopefully we see more female coaches taking that leap and developing the belief that, oh, yeah, I can go and do this. I'm going to sound like a broken record to our listeners. So apologies <laughs> in advance. Oh, I know what's coming here. <laughs> and, uh, I'll keep it light. promise I'll keep it light. Based on what you said it's, it rings the themes to me of how particularly certain generations of women we're always grown up told that there's certain things that we can't do or that we inherently know that are only for boys or only for men you know one being men coach men's teams for example uh women coach women's team whatever so I think case in point it is really important that you are like even uh, coach Liz Mills as well shout out to her she's off coaching men's teams people like yourself also coaching men's teams it is really important for representation to pave the way that that is something that women can achieve and also to show I suppose a lot of the doubters as well that women still know just as much about sport as men we still have as much skill to offer and it doesn't matter if you're coaching men or women or in between the translation is essentially the same. I could not agree more. Absolutely. And I think that, and, and you know, maybe that's because my experience with the Kings has been so incredible. I think that people are people like, you know, we talk about gender differences and all the rest of it, but at the end of the day, it's understanding individuals and dealing with human beings, regardless of, for me, like people always ask me, oh, what's it like, you know, coaching men and then coaching women? I'm like, it's honestly, there is so little difference. The style of play is different. Absolutely. But it's about developing relationships and communicating and understanding the individuals that you're working with, regardless of their gender. So 
I completely agree. I think if we can continue to break down those barriers, I laugh a little bit because the two questions I get asked probably the most is when I'm on the road is, I'm the only female in the traveling party, obviously, usually is, are you the team physio or are you the team manager? So both of those roles are filled by males in our team. So we do have a little bit of a chuckle, but we have been educating people slowly that uh, no, I'm actually part of the coaching staff. So hopefully it continues, but people have been so supportive. I don't think I realized, you know, we were on the road in Brisbane and we come out, we'd lost an, a heartbreaker in the fourth. And there was a group of King supporters outside as we walked out and the boys were like, thanks for coming. We really appreciate the support, you know, and Chase, you know, was thanking them. And the little girl's like, oh, Fleur. And I'm like, oh, hi. She's like, can my mum get a photo with you? My mum loves you. And I'm, I was absolutely blown away. <laughs> that, and the mum's like, oh, I'm just so, I like, I love watching you. And I was like, this is incredible. I was so blown away that this lovely lady and her daughter wanted to have a photo with me when she's got half the king's guys running around so that was beautiful it was really nice that you know you don't think people are watching or sort of noticing but then you realize you know it does matter and those sort of stories and making sure that there's representation is critical and I'm really really glad that the whole king's organization from top to bottom has welcomed you so much including the players because I think you're right when you're in that environment you don't really understand that it's actually not that bad um once you're in there like people are genuinely I feel like definitely getting more and more used to or the norm is more and more becoming that you know women entering those typically male environments like a male professional sports team but once you get there it's actually fine like no one really bats an eyelid and the people that do kind of find some opposition to it are the ones that are actually ended up being outcast Absolutely. I'm really fortunate as well. The Kings have an amazing front office, some unbelievably, incredibly inspiring women that work in our front office. So I've got great relationships with them. I think out of, you know, they were my biggest supporters when I came over to Sydney because obviously I moved here from WA and I left sort of, you know, lots of my family and friends and they were so unbelievably supportive of me and I think my biggest cheerleaders almost. So that really gave me courage as well. Like, and I, I absolutely love working with them. They're absolute dynamos in their own respect. So feel very, very lucky to be with this organisation and, you know, all the people working within it and as part of our team. We'll kind of stay in this vein because I know there's something that Jacinta wanted to talk about in relation to nuance. Yeah, good segue, Paul, um, <laughs> because you did mention before, Fleur, that you do get asked a lot about the differences and nuances between coaching men's and women's. For me, I mean, I've only coached really kids. I haven't coached adults, thankfully. But uh, for me, if I <laughs> if I coach when I'm coaching, uh, you know, teenage girls or teenage boys, I find for me the communication or strategy or uh, teaching a particular skill is essentially the same. I'm going to ask the question of the differences and the nuances between men and women because you did mention before that you said the men's game you feel is slightly different to the women's game. Yeah, look, I think it's just style of play in terms of when you're executing stuff, you can, you know, I still remember one of my very first training sessions when I moved over, Chase was talking about playing out of pick and roll and you know, Chase's staff, him himself as a head coach, very active on the floor. Um, you've got Daniel Kicken and Kevin Leach, two former NBL stars that could probably still suit up for an NBL team. So very active as a coaching staff. Nothing makes you feel old and unathletic than being surrounded by these human beings on a daily basis. But we're out on court. Chase is talking about playing out of pick and roll and 
flirt on this if you pass it, just lob it up. And I'm like, lob it up where? And he he's like, well, just lob it up like at the square and they'll go get it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. When have I ever thrown a lob for someone to go dunk it in my entire life? So in terms of like playing style, that's probably the biggest difference that I would talk about in terms of, I mean, the women are such incredible athletes, but I'll call it more verticality um, mm. athleticism, you know, in terms of the way that the guys play and just sort of some of the looks that you can get out of things, slightly different in terms of coaching men and that sort of stuff in, in little nuances and, and what we're looking for in terms of angles and what we can get up around the rim. So that's probably the the biggest difference I would say in coaching men and women. But overall, like I mentioned to you before, just into like, it's just very much individuals, you know, and understanding individuals and where they want to succeed and their roles within the team and their role within our style of play and how to get the best out of them, you know, so that they're fulfilling their individual potential, but as well helping the Kings in our style of play and where they want to go. So I think that integration is absolutely critical, but regardless of your coaching men or women, that's probably, you know, the things that I focus on. And the mentioning of building uh, the relationships and the player development, we definitely want to sink our teeth into that later as well. We've put that down as a talking point because I think there's a lot that we can get from that as well. It's super interesting. But it is weirdly validating as well to hear that the small differences between men and women is essentially things like verticality because I I put a a reel on Instagram and the point of it was basically saying, you know, men and women's basketball fundamentally is the same. And the one thing that I'd get a lot of males on Instagram replying is like, uh, it's it's different because men can dunk. And I'm like, and? Yeah. And? and uh, yeah. I'll also, I'll, yeah, look, and I'll also say anybody who wants to come back with that one, we've got video of one of the uh, previous Flames player dunking as well. So they can park that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally, totally. And Fleur, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about your background as well because you've coached NBL1, you've coached WNBL, now you're coaching NBL. How do you see the role of the coach differ between those leagues? Because there's obviously, you know, a whole different level of professionalism and athleticism Mm. that goes with those leagues. What sort of things do you see now as a coach you would need to be aware of across the variances in performance? Look, I think... I feel really fortunate now that I'm working in professional sport because you just have so much more time and resources for player development because it's a full-time occupation. So when I was with the WNBL team, the Perth Lynx, this is going back, oh, I don't want to say how long, but a good 14 years ago. And it was, you know, and it's, I mean, look, women's sports come such a long way and I'm really pleased that, you know, it has come, but it's still such a long way to go in that, you know, all these women back then all were studying, had part-time jobs. It was a part-time gig to play in the WNBL. Obviously, there's uh, more money and resources now, still drastically not enough, but I think understanding that, you know, resources and time is completely different when you're coaching in the WNBL and the NBL one as well. So, You've got kids that are trying to make it to that next level, but you've also got players as well that that's not their job. It's semi-professional. And whilst there's time commitment there, they've also got jobs or they're studying on top of that. And that's real balance of time. So I think as a coach, you need to be really understanding of the kind of demands that are on your players, particularly when you're looking at development and you're forming those relationships, because it's completely different working in professional sport where this is their job um, and this is their responsibility and where, you know, they 
that they put their time and they put their effort. So that's probably the biggest thing for me as a coach in understanding that. And I think um, working in professional sport now gives me a little bit more, I guess, of an eye opener in terms of the resources that are available. So I think coming from that WNBL and that NBL1 experience and looking at people trying to juggle these multiple commitments that they have while at the same time trying to get better and do the best they can in the the league that they're playing, I think was really good for me in terms of my empathy and understanding. And I think quality of time, being efficient with what you're doing, because obviously they're not there all day, every day, They can't stay around five days a week and it's looking at where you've got that efficiency of time to be able to build the development that they're seeking and helping people get where they want to go. So that's probably the biggest thing I've noticed between the leagues. Okay. It's interesting because looking at at the WNBL, particularly now to, you know, say even 10 years ago, it's moved on significantly. You're seeing better rates of pay, there's a high level of athleticism amongst the players. How do you think this is going to develop in terms of the WNBL, say, over the next few years? I know it's it's kind of guesswork, but what do you think is kind of like the roadmap looking like? I think the roadmap's looking really positive for the WNBL. I think that we have a really strong base of local talent. I think the minimum pay requirements now are obviously the best that they've been and still, again, as I keep saying, a long way to go. But I obviously think your top-tier players are probably getting paid more than they ever had as opposed to 10, 15 years ago when it was a battle. They couldn't – those top-tier players, this they get to do this as their job primarily. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. Even if we had Carly Wilson as our franchise player back in the days for the Lynx and even then she was studying and she was working at the same time as well as being the marquee player for the Perth Lynx so I think that the roadmap looks really really positive I think they need to continue obviously to invest and I but I also think there needs to be I guess the viewership and the engagement is increasing and I think that will continue to increase. I think one of the greatest things that we need for female athletes is with the invention of, I call it new media, but social media, female athletes are able to write their own story more than ever before. That wasn't around back then. So you can actually be in more of a promotional aspect to tell people and to showcase your talents so that people can see what you're doing as a professional athlete. So I think that's really important. And I think that will only continue to grow. I mean, the numbers speak for itself in terms of more people engaging with women's sport, attending women's sporting games, and obviously clicking and engaging online. So I think being able to create that experience is something that is really positive and I think can only see the growth and development of women's sport. At the same time, I think you're also seeing sponsorship you know, women's sport is an attractive sponsorship options for those companies that may get lost in the the masses of men's sport now that you could be a naming rights sponsor and be able to create that foundation and growth for your company and your business, but obviously through a female pathway. So I'm really excited. I think the product of the WNBL is fantastic. Obviously been really lucky this year because the Flames have played so many double headers with the Kings. And I know that it's really nice that the, the Kings players have all either stuck around and supported the Flames or we all get there early and make sure we at least watch the first quarter before we all go start our on-court workouts before our games. So I think that connection and being able to have men and women's sports combined and, you know, double the entertainment value is also a positive thing as well. Yeah, and having some of the Kings players come out on social media too, like uh, DJ will tweet, you know, make sure you stick around and watch the Flames play or um, even some of them putting up selfies and stuff while they're watching. I think that's 
that's really, really cool as well. And especially for Sydney situation where they're, you know, hoops capital. It's really like going back to um like a club, like a like a club you'd see in NBL one, how you've got your men and women's teams side by side, one play after the other, they support each other. I don't think you really see that a lot in Australian professional sports. Um, I think the AFL and the netball used to sometimes have a bit of a brother-sister partnership, but I think what Sydney is doing is probably one of the first. Please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I mean, back in – I'm going way back now to the 90s. That's showing my age. But yes, the breakers, don't. Yeah. <laughs> please don't. Um, the breakers, the Perth breakers as they were back then, used to play with at the Wildcats, you know, at the Entertainment Centre as well. So that was very, very cool back in the day, you know, when 90s basketball was exploding. But, you know, I think it's been a really fantastic concept for the Hoops Capital and it's been so nice to see our Kings players get behind the Flames players and I think that real integration of that one club mentality has been fantastic for the organisation. Yeah, and it harkens back, as you said, to the 90s. I mean, I remember when you'd go to to see the Kings play and the Flames were the, the opening game and they would bring in some big crowds. Yep. And I think it's it's one of those things you're going to have to build. Because uh, there's been a, a step back with the WNBL, which is unfortunate, but by having the two together and when people realise the quality of the play, because it's good, let's be honest, the word of mouth will start to bring more people. And on top of that, we've got the World Cup coming in six months. Can't wait. Yeah, oh my can't God, wait. can't wait, can't wait. The draw's yeah. out. It's all real yes. now. It's real now. The draw's out. The move to Sydney's paid off for me because I will be definitely attending the World Cup. It's very exciting. <laughs> and on side note, I hope your family and friends that are still on the West Coast have, you know, been forgiving with you moving to the East Coast as well because I can't imagine that wouldn't have, would have been easy. There's never been so many King supporters in Western Australia before. I think, <laughs> That's um, awesome. That's I awesome. think I'm going to have to try and talk Smitty into buying a block at RSC Arena because I think between myself, the makers and Wani Swaka, all from WA, I think we could actually fill an entire block at uh, RAC and, and Perth Arena and get some support for the Kings when we go west. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, because uh, when they hit over there, it's definitely going into enemy territory. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> One of the other things that I've I, – I look, I personally find this really interesting is that whole transition from player to coach. Some players can do it. Other players, it just doesn't work for them. How did you find the transition? And also, because of your background in academia and your area of specialty, have you been able to kind of identify particular traits or, you know, particular characteristics that would help in that transition? It's a really good question. Um, Yes, in, in response to that, I think education and working in education and teaching My personal opinion is I think that is a huge upside when you're going into coaching because you're so used to working out what's the best way for me to convey this message, how do I get people's attention or how do I convey that this is really important and this is the main point I want to make. I think that's an advantage because when you're teaching, you try and sprinkle that through your lectures and your tutorials so that people understand what the take-home point is and I think it's a little bit the same with coaching. You've got to work out what your main message is that you're trying to get across um, and ensure that that is consistent with what you're delivering. So I think that has been an advantage for me. I think that, yes, uh, you know, my background area in skill acquisition and sports psych, I think probably out of everything, the trait that I 
think helps as well is that I'm just such a curious person, like whether I'm learning about people and trying to understand people's stories and listening. So I think that trait of curiosity has been really beneficial for me in transferring that to a coaching setting. I can't even remember the first part of your question now, Paul. I've gone completely off on a tangent. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's that whole transition thing. Um, yes, yeah, I'm back. That's all I need. I just need to trigger from you, Paul, that's all. <laughs> um, I think transitioning from player to coach was actually something that I found quite easy because I coached when I was playing. So was really fortunate when I was playing NBL one that I was able to be an assistant coach with state teams, junior WA state teams. So 16s country teams and 18s teams under 20 women's teams. So I was able to fit that in whilst I was still playing. So for me, I found it was really helpful in terms of things that I was learning while I was still playing and looking to try and convey that or work with young people coming through and making sure that, you know, I was able to work on my communication skills. I was really fortunate as well that I was always put in like a, I was always a captain or a leader of teams and that's something that I worked really hard to develop because I think about how I was in my early 20s thinking I was this amazing leader and I was atrocious to be perfectly honest so I think as you get older and you get more experience in dealing with different situations and different demographics and males and females while still playing for me it was such a helpful thing a for my coaching but then transferring it back into me leading in NBL one as well so I felt like it was beneficial on both accounts the other thing that I think was easy for me is that I was so not an athletic human and even more so that's exposed every day at the Sydney Kings now. But back then as a player, it was my smarts that kind of kept me on court, like how I was going to outthink people or, you know, understanding where, you know, a couple of plays ahead, how I thought the defense was going to react to things. So I think that probably held me in good stead as well when I was transferring over to coaching. I was going to ask as well, because uh, you mentioned you were coaching and playing at the same time and coaching at different levels. Was playing while you were coaching make you a better coach and coaching while you were playing make you a better player? Because I found when you're doing both and you're back on court as the player, it makes you a lot more accountable because you're like, oh, wait, yesterday I was instructing people to do this better. I better do the same, right? I completely agree with you, Jacinta. I had one. So, yes, when I kept them separate, I had one season of NBL 1 when I player coached and I was atrocious at both. Like I just – I don't know how people play a coach, to be honest. I no. um, I ended up having to play because we lost some players through injury. So, naturally, I, you know, sort of played. But I think back at how badly I handled that entire situation – and that certainly didn't make me a better player coach because I was awful at both. But when I was able to separate it and I was coaching junior state teams, playing NBL one, that certainly, I think, helped me in both respects. So in that light, would you recommend young players, you know, who are going through the junior program to perhaps start, you know, coaching some teams as part of their player development? I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Not everyone's cut out to be a coach as well. But if it's something that you're interested in and you want to develop, I used to even say it to my uni students all the time as well when they wanted to get better at communicating relationships. I used to say to them, why don't you go coach a domestic team for a season, you know, and work on working with junior players and how you're going to deal with your parents and your players and all those sort of things. So I think even from a personal development perspective for uni students, I used to encourage that. And I think for players that have an interest in getting better at that sort of thing, um, 
communicating, knowing how to deal, you know, in different situations, different levels, you know, when you're coaching juniors as, a, as opposed to coaching young people, I think it can be really beneficial for people, as particularly as they're kind of going through and looking to develop those certain elements and traits of their own personal development. I was kind of curious about the idea of, and you'd probably have some insights into this, the whole idea of the similarities between coaching and just leadership more generally because you know coaching is very focused on a particular area whereas I'm talking about leadership more generally how do you see that relationship I think coaching and I'll say it for both actually the biggest thing that I've learned over the years now that I'm old is that I think it has to be more reciprocal when you're in a coaching relationship and as a leader as well I think that we used to and I certainly did when I was leading teams in my you know 20s and teens I thought that the leader was the leader and that was pretty much it. But I think what I've learned over the years is that part of being a leader and part of being a coach is empowering the people that you're working with to develop their own leadership skills and also as well, not coach themselves, but problem solve and come up with solutions themselves. So that for me has been my biggest area of development and learning over many, many years now. I thought that I had to always dictate what I thought the solution was and you know I convey that message and then people get it that's how you obtain knowledge you know and as a leader that's what I do I set the example I tell people what we have to do and how we're going to get there and I drag people with me that's what leaders do and I've completely changed my mindset in that approach particularly as a coach in that yes we're there to guide and but I think part of developing as a professional athlete, as any athlete, is being able to problem solve and figure things out. Because if we take that away, we're turning people into little robots that just, you know, listen all the time, but don't actually take anything in. So I think understanding how people learn and getting them to engage in learning is really important. And also getting people to develop their own leadership skills. Not everyone has to be an extrovert and be able to speak up all the time. But I think even for those people that aren't comfortable doing that they're encouraging them that they have parts to play by leading with example you know and their actions matter I think those are the probably the two things that I've learned the most in looking at leadership and coaching and to be honest I think they're one and the same you know in terms of me you know understanding that a little bit more as I've become wiser <laughs> mm. and I think gone are the days of coaching uh, with an iron fist so to speak, because I also had a few coaches. I mean, I, I was very lucky. I had great coaches, but I definitely also had some coaches where it was a bit my way or the highway kind of thing. Uh, you know, you, you get subbed on, you shoot one bad three-pointer, you get subbed off as punishment. I, I'm hoping that gone are the days where that is the coaching style. But I really like your idea, or I shouldn't say idea, the implementation of enabling a player to develop their own skill and their own problem solving because I do worry sometimes that junior basketball was becoming too robotic we were going away from that type of basketball where it was all read and react like we give you the tools we we practice the tools of if the defense is here you do this if the defense is hands down you shoot all that read and react stuff started to fall away and everything started to become just basically running a set and then what happens if the defense knows that set what do you do then you know what I mean? So exactly, you've got to, you're instilling me with hope that um, that coaches are still encouraging junior players to develop that player IQ, so to speak. And I think just also understanding what they see. I, th I mean, the best part of working with adults in professional sport is it's very reciprocal. Like, so if I'm sitting down doing film and 
you're working with, you know, you have certain players that you're working with film, but I like to like see what they think. Like I'll have a clip and I'll be like, this is what I think. What do you think? They're like, well, I see this. And this is what I'm thinking when I do this. And I'm like, okay, I get, I really like that. Like the bouncing back and forth of ideas and sort of looking at stuff together and, and swapping ideas. For me, that's a really fulfilling way of coaching. And that's the fun bit of the game, right? Like the the variables in basketball. It is such an unpredictable game with multiple variables at any time. And so the exciting thing for me for basketball is having those pinpoint moments of the read and react to make the right decision. And that's what, yeah, that's what makes it exciting for me. Particularly unpredictable if you coach the Sydney Kings, if you watched any of our <laughs> games this year. Oh, my goodness, mate. I've been a Kings fan since I was about seven, eight. So before, oh, awesome. before I started playing, I used to go to Kings games. So I know exactly what it's like to live as a Sydney <laughs> Kings fan. We just yeah. like to keep it exciting. We're, oh, if well. nothing else, we're very exciting in the last minute of the game. It's a historical thing. I mean, I, I we had... <laughs> We had season tickets from their very first season at the Entertainment Centre. So, yeah, it was always the, the last second. And I suppose you're being honest to the history of the team and you've brought it back. Well, it's really funny you mentioned that, Paul. We've done this really brilliant thing this year and that one of our coaching interns, Liam, has created a historical, almost doco series of the City Kings. And he started right back from its inception in the league and what's sort of gone on over the years, obviously the glory years. And obviously then, you know, there was some tumultuous years when they weren't in the league. And so he's taken us all through the history with interviews of former players and captains. It's been amazing. So it's really nice for me as well, like and others as well that haven't grown up in Sydney to really understand the history of the Sydney Kings. Obviously, you know, the star players, because you've seen that being a basketball fan, but really understanding, you know, the ups and downs. So when you say, you know, the cardiac Kings and the history, I'm well versed on it because we've watched an episode <laughs> um, most weeks of this season. So it's been really nice to understand the history. I'd love to see that as well. If it is ever made publicly accessible, that sounds awesome because there was a period when we used to go watch the Kings and it was Damien Keogh, Dean Utah, Leon Trimmingham, never won a game. My mom yeah. still says to me, you poor child, never getting <laughs> to see within the Kings win a game. But, you know, then I was lucky to um, go and watch games in the Brian Gorge in years where they won. Yes. Three so yeah. I was, you know, the redemption was real. Yeah. And the current Sydney Kings are trying to win some games for you as well this year. I know. So I, I yeah. really do appreciate it. It, it, it. would it would be good to sort of get the W before the clock gets down to maybe the last couple of tenths, but, you know. I can't promise anything, but I'll see what we can do. <laughs> Just that Perth game, that last Perth game was like, oh, what? Oh. Oh. And in the meantime, you call cardiac kings, but my Fitbit isn't logging any cardio in the next It's just all stress. Yeah, absolutely. Your heart rate's just going through the roof by, yeah. the, by the last quarter, ups and downs. It prompts yeah, and- me to do my deep breathing exercises. <laughs> oh, man. Up to the next bit. We're going to uh, get back into the player development stuff we and building relationships stuff that you have already touched on and I said we're going to sink our teeth into and now we're at that point. So for our listeners, uh, Flair was an assistant professor, as you mentioned before, in Fremantle and you you got your PhD, which is a fantastic achievement. So congratulations because that is no easy feat. (laughs) So we just wanted to know how that academic pathway 
contributed to your role as a coach, but I feel like you've already started to shape uh, your answer around that. So building relationships, connecting with people. You said you're quite a curious person, so you like learning about people. But I want to know, I've, I've read another interview with yourself and it mentioned that you like to take a holistic approach to player development. So I want to know a little bit more detail about what your holistic approach in player development is. Yeah, so obviously we spend so much time on court, you know, like that's so for me as well in this role, I think taking a holistic approach is obviously not only understanding what needs to happen on court, you know, fitting a player's goals and as an individual into, you know, the style of play of the Sydney Kings and how we think they fit into their system and what their strengths are and perhaps what are some areas of growth. So that's been it's been really great working with Chase because he's got a really strong player development background in the NBA and the G League. So it's been great working with him and watching how he develops these plans for each individual player. That's been fantastic. I think it's also been really useful for me um, watching our head of high performance, uh, Toby Banfield as well, in terms of the performance aspect, you know, your strength and conditioning and your power, your agility, your strength, your loading stuff. So that's been really fascinating for me because I think that's a big part of player development when we have a look at obviously not just on-court skills and being on the basketball court, it's also this this other stuff that, you know, we're trying to educate our young players, but also as a coaching staff as well. Obviously, I worked in sports science, but it's been fascinating to watch it firsthand. So I think that's one element. I think the other stuff that really interests me is the off-court stuff as well. So, you know, your mental approach and understanding people's personalities during games. I take someone like Jalen Adams, for example. Obviously, he's been incredible for us the entire year. And the way he goes about it, he's really diligent when he's on court. J.A. is, of course, one of the most casual human beings you'll ever meet in your entire life as well. He never looks phased by anything. And I think I'm such a, at times, like, oh, like, you know, I want everything to be controlled and, you know, I've got to make sure J.A. is not phased. And I think that part of his personality transcends into those big moments that he's not overawed by the moment and he just takes everything in his stride and he's just gonna he's one of those unique players that I think you know you guys watching on the sideline but he makes it look like he's got all the time in the world when he's actually manipulating through pick and rolls and so it's really interesting watching JA's not I shouldn't say casual but almost just this calm approach with how he goes about things that he's not overawed so for me that's really interesting in trying to understand you know, your personalities and all the rest of it and working through with people, how they like to approach different situations, whether it's during the game, before the game. So that's when I talk about, you know, holistic approaches, it's more understanding those personalities and what works for some people. So what works for JA is not going to work for everyone else. So I sort of think of those three elements I mean, understanding people's personalities, their mindset approach to things. You know, if there's certain areas that perhaps they're lacking, they need some confidence in certain areas or they need uh, a little bit of work in particular skill set or maybe there's more uh, strength and conditioning things that is a focus for Toby that he understands the role that they have to play on court. So it's been really interesting in terms of me learning more of that high-performance stuff. But holistic, I kind of look at all those elements combined. Because... You also have a background with sports psychology and that's something I feel like growing up in basketball, going back to basketball, I feel like if we want to have a more holistic approach to our player development in any level, sports psych is one thing that I always think is missing or I feel like could have a stronger presence. So if you have someone, for example, like a development player and you can tell that they're probably 
uh, quite nervous. Their first time DP, they're probably quite nervous being around people like Jalen Adams and Jarrell Martin, who are superstar imports coming into training and trying to hold their own. What kind of conversations do you have with them to kind of make them feel more at ease? Well, look, I think we're really fortunate, the Kings, in the environment that we've created. I think, you know, it's often really easy in those sort of sporting environments that you've got, you know, you top tier players and that sometimes others get forgotten about but I think that what we've created at the Kings and I think what Chase has done a really nice job of is that you know he touches everyone he makes sure that um, everyone gets some engagement with him he's out on the floor running individuals with different people you know and sort of make sure that everyone's included despite the fact that majority of the time when he's coaching it's your starters that are on the floor and during games and all the rest of it but he's done a really nice job of cultivating this environment with the Kings, whereas I think those guys would feel really, really comfortable in being in that environment. I think as well early on, it's just making sure that people understand that what their role is on court and encouraging them that if you get an open shot, shoot the ball. Like, you know, if we run a good look and JA penetrates and he gets you on, it's okay for you to shoot it. And again, like I keep talking about, these guys are really good guys. They are very supportive of each other. So when the DPs are on and they'll give them advice, but as soon as they do something great, they're the first people to go up and make sure that they feel part of it and they're congratulating them on doing something really well. So I think as a coaching staff, it's also making sure, like Lockie Lonigan does a great job with our DPs. He works with a lot of our DPs and he works really hard in sort of making sure that they're developing their aspects of their game that they might not get to all the time in scrimmage because obviously they're not on the floor a lot, whereas he's looking at some of the stuff that he can really elevate them to regular players in the NBL. So I think knowing that they've got, you know, coaching staff that are looking out for them, looking after them, working on certain things for them to get better and then encouraging them when they get their opportunity, go grab that opportunity with both hands, I think is really important for them to feel comfortable and confident whenever they're on the floor. And that this kind of speaks to some of your resources as well that you touched on earlier that you're able to have such an extensive coaching staff but then can also have afford the time to give DPs their own time to develop because, yeah, like you said, they kind of have, you know, catching up to do to get to, you know, the, the level of the starting five in a sense of, um, you know, game time and experience and stuff. But having having that extra coaching on the side is going to allow them to to kind of catch up a little bit quicker. And and I, we talked about before, Paul, your question in the differences in between NBL one and and NBL, and, and I think that's one of the advantages, you know, of of NBL in that. There's additional coaches and staff mm. and that, you know, in a 16-man, 17-man squad, everyone gets developed. And I think that can often be really, really tough at an NBL one level when you've got limited training sessions a week, but also limited staff. And, you know, you're not with the players all the time. We get to see, I mean, I spend more time with the Sydney Kings than I do with anyone else in my life. So I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But <laughs> this is, you know, this is one of the advantages. You know, you get that time and you can invest that. I talk about player development. The two biggest things are time and energy, you know, into people. And you're able to do that at this level. So it's something that, you know, I feel especially grateful for. It speaks to that professionalism as well, that level of professionalism, because being on the outside, you see professional sporters being, oh, yeah, wake up, eat, go train, go to the gym. But you kind of forget about all the other extra work of, like you mentioned before, with player development, kind of developing individual plans for individual players that are so centered on the player that you've got strength and conditioning and you've got other stuff like you've got all these multifaceted kind of interventions per se 
to go into a player. That's I love that. I love that. The health professional in me was like, okay, what assessments do you use? Um, <laughs> do they have access to a dietitian? Is that catered into they, a thing? <laughs> they do. They do have access to a dietitian. She's amazing. So she comes to training about once a month and meets with the players as well. So yeah, they have all the resources and access, which is yeah, it's been fantastic to sort of watch and particularly as this is my first foray into professional sport and really see, you know, what's sort of happening off court as well. Yeah, and you got Dr. Dave there as well. He used to be Dr. Flip Flames. Oh, yes, he did too. Yes. He did. So, and that's why you guys have got to get a ring. So that way he can have a WNBL ring and an NBL ring. Got to have both, absolutely. Yep, that's it. Not complete unless he gets the set. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, look, it, it always takes a lot of time to develop yourself and to get to roles like the role that you've got. What about key people and mentors for you? Sure. Um, there's a few. So I'll, I'll list a few if that's okay. Oh, sure, I go for it. Been, in the spirit of International Women's Day, I have been really fortunate in my professional life in academia that I had some incredible female managers and supervisors. So I was really fortunate enough. I had two female supervisors for my PhDs who at the time were also the dean of the School of Health Sciences where I was working at. So uh, Helen Parker and Beth Hands were instrumental for me. Our dean, Naomi Trengove, then came in and then one of my other sort of teaching and uh, learning manager was um, Associate Professor Fiona Farringdon and those four women have been so instrumental in shaping my life in that I was given responsibility for a degree very early as the head of the degree and promoted to Associate Professor and all that sort of stuff that came with it but I think for them they just set a standard in terms of who I wanted to be as a lecturer and a researcher in terms of the quality of their work and just the way they had the utmost belief in me to go chase whatever I wanted to be. So those four were absolutely instrumental and sort of where I've come from as a 25-year-old working in academia to where I am now. In a basketball sense, I'm really, really, I said grateful, I guess. I've been able to coach with Andrew Cooper for probably the last six years before I moved to Sydney. So Coop is the head coach of the Coburn Cougars NBL1 team and was the head coach of the under-18 WA Metro team. He's currently the coach of the under-20 men. So I've coached with Coop for the last probably five, six years with junior high-performance programs and in NBL1 in men's programs. And he has just been such a great friend to me and mentor in terms of the way he approaches things, his professionalism, his attention to detail is unbelievable, whether it's a national championships or semi-professional. Um, and his style of play and the way he's constantly evolving and how he works with his players. So he's been such a huge support for me and he's still someone I touch base with a lot and we sort of follow each other, I guess. And yeah, very, very much grateful to him and for him in my life because he's been such a huge support for me. And I guess finally, I mean, I still talk to Adam Caporn a fair bit on in terms of basketball. Obviously, he's one of my best friends, so it's not always basketball. We try not to focus on basketball all the time, but he's a really good source of just bouncing ideas off and seeing what he thinks. He's obviously been through COE here and coaching Australian junior teams and now with the Boomers and coaching over in the G League. So he's just a really nice, just I guess a voice for me to bounce some stuff up. And Luke's a really good source of information as well. So I'm not doing too badly having Adam Capon and Luke Longley as two people. The current coaching staff, I won't say mentors, but I so enjoy coaching with, you know, Kev, Kicks, Lockie and of course Chase. Like it is such a fun group to be around I, I've said this repeatedly on this podcast but I feel lucky every day that I get to go to work and these are the people that I get to work with so 
yeah, it'd be remiss if I didn't say the current coaching staff of the Kings as well. Cool. Did I list enough people? <laughs> oh, you can keep going if you want. I mean, we don't, we don't mind. <laughs> no way. <laughs> okay, so what's – I know everybody hates this question, but looking down a road again, oh. where do you see, you know, things developing for you as a coach? Oh. Paul, you're killing me. Um, no, you're not. <laughs> I get asked this a lot. It's really funny. Chase asked me in my interview and I said to him, are you going to hold it against me if I don't know? And he's like, no, not at all. I said, well, let me see Like, let me see if I can get this job first and if I can do this job well and then we'll kind of go from there. So I'm committed to the Kings for next year. Like, um, They were very gracious in giving me a two-year contract if I was awesome. going to pack my life up and move to Sydney. So I'm invested in the Kings for at least another 12 months. And look, who knows beyond that? I'm really, really enjoying my time with this organization. And I certainly feel really positive about where we're going as a team, but also as a club. You know, I know Paul's got big plans and and so does Chris, the CEO. So beyond that, Paul, I actually don't know. I probably need to put more thought into what's next for me. I'm kind of open to anything, to be honest. So I'm really enjoying being part of professional sport and using you know this is my job and I get to be a coach because I'm having so much fun and feel very very fortunate but beyond that I've actually got no idea beyond the the, ask me at the end of next season okay no worries in between then let's just see if I can do this well and Sydney Kings can make playoffs and then win the whole thing we'll aim for that gives us an excuse to get you back okay sounds like a plan (laughs) and hopefully your lifestyle off court in sydney uh has been enjoyable enough to to keep you sticking around for a bit longer it's been interesting moving over in the middle of a pandemic sydney was in lockdown i was at work for two weeks and then we we got shut down we're in iso for 14 days and i was thinking to myself what am i doing like i've not sure I've made a smart choice here. So it's certainly had its challenges. You know, it's not all sunshine and light. It has been really challenging leaving everyone in, in Western Australia. And, you know, despite the fact I love my job and I love working with these guys, I'm really fortunate to have some great friends in Sydney who you guys have had on the show before, Renee and Tom Garlop, are good friends of yep. yours, Jacinta. Awesome. Um, so they've been wonderful, you know, and I, I have got some friends outside, but it hasn't been a lot of time in between lockdowns and restrictions and things like that. So I'm really hoping that when we get past all this COVID stuff, I'll get to actually go and see what Sydney's got to offer because I probably haven't explored enough. And if the rain stops, that'll help my cause too. Oh, so, yeah, the rain. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so. you, you came from the beautiful land of no return, essentially, with yes. beautiful beaches and sunshine and, and all we can offer so far is lockdowns and rain. That's okay. I have high hopes. It does get better. I promise we it gets we better. Yeah, we won't disappoint you. Before we go... And I don't know if you've heard any of our other podcasts. We tend to ask a little oddball question. And I'm going to go a little bit different to try and play to your strengths. Thinking about, you know, your background, sports psych and, and, you know, people and people management. If you could pick one basketball player that you could bring on to the Kings roster, and it doesn't have to be a current player, who would it be and why? Oh, it could be anyone playing anywhere in the world. Anyone playing anywhere in the world. It could be somebody who's retired. Okay. But the key thing is why. Oh, I want to say two, but you only okay, say you can have one. Two. Can you I can have two. two. Yep. Well, I, I've, I've got to go just sheer, like, 
from a fangirl perspective, it's got to be someone like, it'd be either LeBron James and Kevin Durant. LeBron, because I just think he's an absolute beast specimen. And I've had tickets twice to watch LeBron play in America, in the NBA, and both times he sat out because he was injured. So purely from a selfish perspective, I would bring him just to fangirl and watch him on the sideline. And I would choose Kevin Durant purely because he's a seven-footer and the way he shoots the ball is unbelievable. Plus he can defend when he's engaged and locked in. So in terms of adding to the Kings roster, I'd take Kevin Durant in a heartbeat. But, yeah, purely from – selfishly just to watch him play once in my lifetime, LeBron James. Okay. LeBron, for me, out of those two, brings also good culture, good sense of charity, good sense of his uh, fellow teammates, good leadership, package deal. (laughs) We'll take all of them. He's already uh, wearing yellow and purple or gold and purple as well. I mean, That's right. And the Lakers suck right now, so he might as well come over and join the Kings. Absolutely. We're doing okay. Yeah. Okay. So we'll put the call out to Paul. (laughs) <laughs> Perfect. Let's get him over. <laughs> Plan. Right. Now, just because you called out LeBron on that, where mm. do you sit in this argument of LeBron? Oh, Jordan? Michael. Yeah. Oh, I'm a 90s kid. I grew up watching, and obviously, <laughs> I, I, so I think I sit in the old school um, with Michael Jordan. You know, for me, I think he's the greatest of all time. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely a nice kid and grew up watching the Bulls and watching Luke with the Bulls as well. So, yep. yeah, i got to go Jordan as a 90s kid. I've really talked about how old I am this entire podcast, have I? But you understand. Absolutely. <laughs> it's legacy. It's legacy. What's your – where are you sitting, Jacinta? Uh, in terms of uh, Jordan, LeBron, LeBron, Jordan, yeah. See – I, I'm someone who, when I'm faced with one of these scenarios, I'm someone who completely overanalyzes it to the point where I can never come to a conclusion. So I, I usually avoid these questions because I'll just go into my own mental rabbit hole of like, yeah, but LeBron's done this. Yeah, but Jordan was like this. Yeah, but LeBron had these. Yeah, but Jordan didn't. It's, so you're uh, just taking a hard pass on the question. Yeah, I, I, I'm the person who will see one of those questions and hide under the doona covers. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> the pressure of answering is too great. <laughs> and this is why uh, I don't like head coaching either. I can't make hard decisions like that. Just get too much in the in the conflict yeah, I, of it. Look, I don't envy Chase at the best of times uh, during some of our games, I've got to be honest. So, yeah, I completely appreciate that. And look, if he still has his hair by the end of the season, that's a win. Oh, yeah. He has said, I think after the Bullets game, he did say post-game, I don't have enough hair for us to keep having finishes like this. I can't. So, yes. And then you had the Perth game. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Hey, you know, the, the players might have... the Adelaide game last week. Yeah. Adelaide game. Oh, yeah, that look, Adelaide game. You know, the players have probably gone off to the side and gone, hey, let's just see how far we can push it. <laughs> A DJ doing Probably. a JF Smith. <laughs> oh, my word. I'm not sure DJ would like that comparison, but I'll let him know. <laughs> He's, yeah, I try and consume as much basketball as I can, but sometimes NBA will just fall off the plate because it's too much. Uh, yeah. But that was yeah. the one NBA reference I could call upon when that happened. I'm like, whoa, you got little Sunday Dench at the end, like LeBron going, give me the ball. I've hit however many threes this game. And then DJ's like, nah. I'm going. I'm going to J.R. Smith this. Chuck it. Oh, oh my gosh, that's so funny. 
We'll take it though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> okay, Fleur, thanks so much. It's been great. It's been a lot of fun. We always love these conversations. It's really been fantastic having you on the show. I really appreciate you having me on. I, um, Yeah, I feel really grateful that you guys have asked me to come on and share some experiences today. And thank you for listening and asking some of the tough questions, Paul, Jacinta. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here to do. That's it. Fleur, good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you. And hopefully we'll see you in the postseason. I think that sounds like an excellent idea. Excellent. Thanks, Fleur. <laughs> thank you. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.